0: Hey everyone! Look! I'm on video! And I'm probably in the audience also, so what's up Tim? Nice beard. Hey, I'm recording because COVID got into our home. My beautiful and superhero of a wife tested positive midweek, and so we all masked up and we sent her to dear friend's back apartment on their property so she could quarantine and rest and recoup on her own. And as of this recording on Friday, she's feeling okay, but I'm sure that the, the rest that she's going through and she's getting is really good for her. Now, I recorded this because there was a chance and the possibility that I could test positive at some point this week. So I figured better safe than sorry and better have me on screen than have me there preaching under the slim chance that all the tests that I took were bogus saying that I was negative. Now, I know when it's a video, it's... It sometimes is a little bit harder to give it the attention that you're accustomed to giving when it's live teaching. But this passage, it needs our attention. It specifically applies to what we are dealing with as a church, as a community, as a culture, and really as a world. And I don't want us to miss it. Because in this video, and even though it might feel a little less interactive than when we're live, I just want us to understand that what we're going to hear today is so important to our spiritual lives. So give this passage your attention over the next few moments, and then we will praise the Lord in music, we'll do some takeaways, and we'll eat some really good pulled pork. Today we will be studying the reaction to the persecution against the movement of God. I don't know what you think of when you hear persecution. It could conjure up ideas of other countries outlawing the Christian faith and any practice of it with threats of murder if, you, if they do not stop. You might see it as someone unfollowing you because of a post that was very pro-Jesus, or maybe it's somewhere in between. Today, we see the response to those that were having their eyes open to the gospel, the good news of Jesus, responding to that good news by being included in something so much bigger than themselves. Now, love makes us do some crazy things, doesn't it? Love makes us act the fool sometimes, When you love someone, you prioritize him or her differently than when you don't have such an affection for someone. When I realized that I had fallen in love with Aaron, rest and sleep became something I sacrificed on the young adult altar of feels. We would usually talk at night on our Nokia cell phones, some of you kids don't even know, and often we'd fall asleep while talking about something that probably had no real substance in reality, But because we were so enamored with one another, putting down the phone was not an option. No, you hang up. No, you hang up. And looking back at that young love that Aaron and I had prior to our engagement and even into our first few years of marriage, I noticed that our love has matured since. We're almost at 19 years of marriage this July, and it has has grown, it has matured. We don't have the same feelings-based kind of love, maybe that we did at first, but we have a love that is based in commitment and even service to one another. We have what the Hebrews call, are you ready? Because I'm going to ask you to pronounce this with me, Ah ahava, say it with me, Ah ahava. Some of you aren't saying it because I'm on video, come on, Ah ahava. And it is a love that is rooted in commitment to another person rather than the changing uh, conditions that could dictate our love. Ahava means that no matter what happens, we're not going anywhere. This is the kind of love that the Holy Spirit, when indwelling us, give us for God and the love that God has for us. We fail him, yet he is faithful to forgive. And while his love for us sacrificed his very son so that we could have access to God, our love for him ought to make us look different as well. Today we are gonna study and see the response of the early church, these early believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and what kind of love that they had for God to the, and the reality that they were persecuted, that Peter and John, these apostles had just experienced persecution in the name of Jesus because through the holy spirit they had healed a man who had been lame since birth. So let's pick up in verse 23 of the 4th chapter of the book of acts and here's what it says. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Hopefully you've heard in sermons in the past few weeks from Chris and Ruth where they covered what had happened to Peter and John after God had healed a 40-something year old man who had been unable to walk since birth. The Sanhedrin, the very powerful religious group of men, had detained Peter and John because they had made a ruckus through being used by the Holy Spirit to heal this man in the name of Jesus. This healing was miraculous, and it was not the point though. This event was to point to Jesus. It was a sign that points to God and his power, and the Sanhedrin didn't really attempt to argue with the healing. They couldn't. They attempted to stunt the preaching of the name of Jesus. So now we have Peter and John released, and they go back to their people, the church, those who God had rescued and redeemed. The apostles share all that the elders and chief priests had said to them about stopping their proclamation that Jesus had risen from the dead and is the Messiah. Many years ago, when my ministry was just really beginning, I used to travel and speak at different Christian clubs at outreaches at middle schools and high schools and colleges and when I would go to these schools I would always be invited by a student ministry leader and a teacher or a faculty member from the school. Now I spoke at most of the schools in and around Santa Clara and San Jose and beyond but only once did I ever get flack for coming. I was invited to speak at lunchtime at a high school over let's see based on where we are over there that will remain nameless, but sounds a lot like Lindbrook. And when I arrived, I went through the office like I always did everywhere. I walked into the classroom where the students were sitting and usually eating pizza. And I set up to share my testimony with them. And before I was uh, introduced, the vice principal of the school entered the classroom and said they wanted to talk to me. Now, what this vice principal told me was that I was not allowed to proselytize the students. Meaning I could not share what I believe and encourage the students to join my belief system and worldview. Now I knew this wasn't true because this was a club and no one was requiring anyone to be here. This was by their own volition. But this vice principal, this VP was really trying to derail what I was about to go do in this club where I was invited, where students came with their own free will, even if they were tempted by pepperoni pizza, But I decided to engage and play by this misinformed and stupid rules that this vice principal had. It was either my smart aleckness or through the power of the Holy Spirit, but sadly it was probably the former. I asked, what do you mean by proselytize?" And the vice principal went on to say that I could not tell them about my religion and tell them how to join it. Now, I could have been petty and argued that my faith is not a religion, but it is a relationship. In fact, I might have been wearing a shirt that said that. But instead I asked, well, what if they asked me? And the vice principal thought about it and for a moment said, well, I guess if they ask you, yes, you can answer their question. Which I thought was great. Because that's essentially how I always would evangelize and proselytize, if you will. As when I define, I would generally answer a question that somebody had. So I shared my testimony, which I did a ton in those days. And I shared about my kidnapping, my mom's death at my early age, about the type of kid I was, about my dad and our disconnect, and how specifically through the evidence of the resurrection, I had bowed a knee to Jesus because I believed that he really is who he says that he is. Now, I shared that entire testimony as a witness of God's mercy and grace in my life, and with about 40 students in the classroom, two teachers, and a vice principal there, I ended my testimony with this. Now, Lindbrook Vikings, I was told by your vice principal over there, and I straight up pointed at him, like Peter at Pentecost, you killed Jesus. And I said... Your vice principal says that I cannot tell you how you can know Jesus who rescued and redeemed me unless you ask me about it. So with that, does anyone have any questions? Well, they asked about what they could do to be saved and I walked through belief, repentance, and following of Jesus. And I believe some of the students became followers of Jesus that day and perhaps since. And God has uses, used other situations to water the soil where the seeds that were spread that afternoon lay. Now, the apostles were unwilling to keep quiet about Jesus, whom the people had crucified, and God had raised from the dead. And it may have been put them in prison overnight. That might have been the general response. But the response of the lame man was that he could not stop telling people of what he heard, that Jesus was the one that truly healed him, that through the gospel, that he was made right. Now, the gospel is always worth any inconvenience. Because as a follower of Jesus, we have been saved not just from hell, but we are saved to be witnesses for his glory and his beauty. Verse 24. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Now, It was the people, the children of God, the church, after hearing about what Peter and John had experienced, came together in one voice, prayerfully, and they said together, Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them. See, the Lord holds all things together. When the world seems out of control, the Lord is in control, which is a promise. It is the truth, and it is a perspective that we as a church seem to forget. When things get harder than we expect. Now the apostles and the followers of Jesus continued in prayer and they said in verse 25 and 26, You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The king of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. They prayed the psalm, actually psalm chapter 2 verses 1 and 2, pointing out that this was seen beforehand and spoken of. This was going to happen and it was happening that the nation's leaders and rulers would plot against Jesus, the anointed one. Verse 27, indeed Herod and Pontius, Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did this They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. This is what some theologians call the mystery of history. Did you catch what the word of God just said? Look at how Pastor Ray Stedman put it many decades ago regarding this very passage. He says it this way, in other words, the God of history uses the very opposition to accomplish his purposes. This is what they saw. God worked through the free will of man. These people opposed the plan of God. They tried to thwart God's purposes. They tried to derail his program, but God operates in such a marvelous way that he uses even this opposition to accomplish his will. That is the story of the cross and of the resurrection of Jesus. We tend to lose faith in God because giving God the benefit of the doubt isn't what culture has taught us. We'd prefer conspiracy theories over logic. We prefer myths over truth. And Paul the Apostle points this out to the young pastor Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Wow. Wow. Never has this been more true, I feel, than now. Where there are news outlets on both sides of the aisle pushing their agenda and telling you what they want you to believe so you will do what they want you to do. Listen, I am not wearing a tinfoil hat, but in a time when public safety and war have become more politicized and polarizing than I have ever seen, we tend to have to believe what our tribe or our political party believe rather than the actual facts. And I want you to know from a theological perspective that if God could allow his own son to suffer and die for the sins of mankind and raise his son from the dead, then yes, God is sovereign. He is in control. He's never surprised and knows about tomorrow a lot better than we do. Now, while studying and looking at this passage and seeing the news about this awful flex of a war from a piece of trash named Putin, I was directed to this passage in the book of Job. It looks like Job. Where Job and one of his friends, Zophar the Naamite, are going back and forth about wisdom. And I believe Job makes the case that God not only is knowable, but is in control in such a way that we as his people can live in the reality that his glory and being and sovereignty is over and above any circumstance that we go through. Emotions and reactions to things, he's above that. To live a life of faith is to trust God in his character and his promises. So here's what it says in Job chapter 12, verses 10 through uh, 24, I believe. In his hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. Does not the ear test words as the tongue tastes food? It's not wisdom found among the aged does not long life bring understanding? To God belong wisdom and power and counsel and understanding are his. What he tears down cannot be rebuilt. Those he imprisons cannot imprison cannot be released. If he holds back the waters, there is drought. If he lets them loose, they devastate the land. To him belong strength and insight, both deceived and deceiver are his. He leads rulers away, stripped and makes fools of judges. He takes off the shackles put on by kings and ties a loincloth around their waist. He leads priests away, stripped and overthrows officials long established. He silences the lips of trusted advisors and takes away the discernment of elders. He pours out contempt on nobles and disarms the mighty. He reveals the deep things of darkness and brings utter darkness into the light. He makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and disperses them. He deprives the leaders of the earth of their reason, and he makes them wander in trackless waste. Wow. See, God is the point. He is in control. While this worthless piece of trash dictator attempts to show off his sovereignty, there is not a thing he can do, including breathe, without the Lord giving him that grace. So why does God let bad things happen? From a human point of view, my answer is simply this. I don't know. But from one who reads the word of God, Someone who reads his word and emotions not being the driving force of my understanding. Why do bad things happen to good people? Because no one is good. Not even one, but God himself. He is the only one who is good and God uses the stupidity and sin of man to fulfill his purposes and bring glory to himself in spite of rulers and dictators attempting to bring glory and praise to themselves. Our responsibility is not to understand why God allows bad things to happen, but to trust and obey him even when things don't go our way. Write that down. Remember that, wrestle with that. Okay, had enough time to write it down or take a picture of it? All right, it's going away in three, two, one, moving on. And while the believers We're continuing to pray. They said it this way. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Look at what they prayed for. They had people who attempted to detain and possibly hurt the apostles, and did they pray that harm would come upon them in an an eye-for-an-eye kind of way, like the way I would want it to be done? No, they prayed for boldness, to proclaim Jesus, so that Jesus would be made famous. This is amazing to me. And something I think we miss and have missed as a church for at least 20 plus years, and I don't mean this one, I mean the churches of, uh, that exist that are supposed to be proclaiming the name of Jesus, every situation that takes place is an opportunity to point and share Jesus. Now, don't become that guy, don't take that too far, don't Jesus-juke everyone everywhere, a barista at Starbucks asks you, how are you today? And you respond with, I am blessed. I am under the grace of Jesus's lordship found in his incarnation in the propitiation of for my sin. How are you? They're gonna be spitting in your coffee right about then. Don't do that. But that doesn't mean we can't be praying for and acknowledging opportunities right now to talk to someone about something that has eternal significance. I get asked by friends who don't yet know Jesus all the time about racism and COVID and this war about God's stance. And while I don't think I could or can or should speak for God in the sense that I just assume what he thinks, I do have his word at my disposal and I can read it with others. And I can come to conclusions on his will found through multiple passages that share the same implications. And in this relationship that we have with God, we get, we don't have to, we get to exalt Jesus, not ourselves. We get to point to people, we get to point people to him specifically, not pointing people to us, not trying to get people to like us, our job as his sons and daughters is to prioritize people knowing Jesus over anything else and we get to be a part of that through prayer and care and proclamation and being prepared with an answer. Now, I have a confession to make about 20 minutes into this message and it's probably something that you're possibly gonna hear incorrectly Some are going to misunderstand. Some aren't going to like it. Some are either going to turn off the video if they're watching this or maybe walk out of the room. But guys, I'm struggling with the church of Jesus Christ right now. Not you in particular, but the church of Jesus Christ in general. I'm pretty fond of y'all. But I'm struggling with being a pastor in a pandemic. And I want to be real about that. While everything becomes political or polarizing, because people see things in different ways, which has always been true, but trying to lead people as public safety has become something that if you see it one way, you're this, and if you see it another way, you're this, and neither actually allow the other to be someone who was created in God's image is crazy to me. And probably a great example of sin's divisive strategy. See, we have dealt with COVID over the past two years, and racism, and more COVID, and politics, and elections, and more racism, and the storming of the Capitol, and more COVID and politics and racism and vaccines and masking and no masking and anti-vaccines and now a war and everyone seems to be an expert and everyone seems to be sure that they're right while everyone else is wrong and rarely if I ever do, do I hear someone actually coming to these situations with the word of God that God gifted us with. The sovereign God of the universe gave us his word that his will was actually available to us in the text. And instead of searching for his implied truth, we've allowed as a nation and really a world, the devil's strategy of division to be what identifies us. Some will say, I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat. Black lives matter, blue lives matter, all lives matter. I am pro-vaccine, I am anti-vaccine, I agree with mandates, I refuse to accept mandates. Listen, I've changed some of my own personal tune in the past two years of, because of some of what I saw and some of what I believed to be true early on. And honestly, I think that that's part of maturing. But I have to look at the world in light of God's will revealed in his word And not how I'm feeling that day. So here's my ask. If you've treated others, other believers, especially with detest and hate, because they don't see something the way that you do. And if they're a brother or sister in the faith, and dwelled by the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, here's what I'd ask of you, faithful, mature believer. Repent. Turn that over to the Lord. And don't just do better. Bow a knee to the one who forgives and allow God to transform you. I know I've had to do this a lot over the past two years, especially. And I don't want to, but I need to. Because my Lord is more important to me than my pride. Amen? Anyone? Anyone say amen? I'll ask audience Tim later if anyone said amen. Now, I want us to be about the gospel. I want people to have experience of understanding who Jesus is. I want us to love other people, not because when we do that, we can feel good about ourselves or point to how nice we are as the reasoning behind why we believe we're Christians, but we love one another because we realize we are just a bunch of broken people and sick people who are in need of a healer and a restorer. And all we want to do is have you experience Jesus, to have your eyes opened to his grace, to have your mind blown by the fact that the gospel is not, I do good, therefore I am loved, but because I am loved, the good I do is letting others know how loved they are too. So church, why are we here? Why are we attending? Why are we watching online? Why would we say that we identify as a part of, a participant of Church of the Valley in particular? Do we attend or or watch online to prove something to a sovereign God who knows us better than we know ourselves? Do we do it to try to show off to other people, to try to make them think that we're holy and religious? Or do we come together week in and week out to praise the name of King Jesus together? Because it is a wonderful expression of God drawing people from all different backgrounds and worldviews to himself. I believe that a real church centered on the gospel is the way that God flexes to a world that thinks we must all be of the same ethnicity or political affiliation in order to gather together with the same beliefs. I believe Jesus rose from the dead. Do you? I believe he forgave me of my sins on the cross. Do you? I believe that he lives and that he reigns and that he rules in heaven and earth forevermore. Do you? It's okay if you're coming here and kicking the tires or because you come with a friend or a spouse that wants you to come hear about this, but you're not yet sure about this that's okay. Man, woman, believe me, we want you here. We want you observing the worship of Jesus. We want you hearing the truth of the gospel week in and week out. But for those of us who claim Jesus Christ as our Savior, what do you really believe about him? Is he the victorious king of your life or an additive and a password to enter into Christian community? Wow, that was harsh but true. Church, let's get real. Following Jesus is hard. And if you're comfortable in your faith, it's probably not faith in Jesus. Because his word, it contradicts us. And what we see in the world is not shaped or filtered by what God says about this world when we look at other people because what they believe is that he doesn't exist or he's not really sovereign or he doesn't really save. Now, his word says it's going to get worse before it gets better. And God is going to allow things that will stretch believers and expose pretenders. But boldness is what the early church prayed for because God redeeming people through the sharing of his word was the offense strategy that God uses in a spiritual war. Verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Now, I know (laughs) that all of us kind of want this to happen after a really solid time of prayer, don't we? In Jesus' name, stop, drop, and roll, right? <laughs> but this is descriptive. This is not prescriptive. This is what actually happened. God affirmed their prayers with this magnificent sign, but don't assume this for every time we pray that this will happen. See, we pray not to change God's mind or to show off, but we pray to get in line with his will. And what was the result? Don't focus in this verse on the earthquake look they were filled with the Holy Spirit filled implies dominated they were dominated by the Holy Spirit and what did they do they spoke the word of God with boldness they spoke the word of God with confidence with courage without fear with frankness In reference to this, it says that they spoke it in public to be expressive and to be exposed as they shared it, but to not care. Why? Because they were confident in the truth of God. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had, according to verse 32. They were one in heart and mind, that is unity. And what was the application for this group of followers of Jesus? Listen, this isn't the birth of communism. This is about prioritizing Christ and his glory and church and name above our own bucket list and our own material possessions. Now, I don't know of any church that does this perfectly, But what I do know is that God's people within this community have been generous to one another in ways I would have never expected. If it were loaning material possessions to someone who was in need, to taking on other people's debts, to giving up of their time, treasure, and talents, to helping restore people financially when they have needed it. Why? Because while the world has taught us to strive for fortune and financial stability, The gospel teaches us that Jesus is our fortune and our stability. And we can trust that he provides for our needs, and sometimes through others, and sometimes through provision that we don't even acknowledge was actually from him also. Because like our jobs that we have and the ability to work as well, I believe is from God. Verse 33 With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. With great power comes great responsibility. Wait, no, 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 sorry. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of Jesus. While this is a description of what they did, I believe this is 100% prescriptive of us today as followers and disciples of Jesus, as indwelled with the Holy Spirit believers, we have a commission to testify to the fact that we don't worship a dead God. We don't worship a dead God who just had some good teachings, but we worship a risen Lord who is as alive today as he was on the third day when he came out of that tomb. And he rules and reigns on earth and resides in heaven where he will one day descend back to earth and judge the living and the dead and those who through faith in his grace can say, I'm with him. Not because we hope that that is true and that he is true, but because God has proven himself over and over that his plan all along was to redeem sinful men, women, and children through the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Anyone else here have a mission statement or a mantra that you live by? Like, like not just do it or, you know, something like that, but My guess is that some of us might even say, do unto others what we'd like done unto us, which is the golden rule, and that's cool. See, the golden rule is not something that justifies us. It's something that the Holy Spirit produces when we get who Jesus really is. So with that in mind, that's a really great mantra. But here's my mantra. I exist to make known that Jesus is alive. Simply that. God, in his kindness and grace, decided to rescue me. First, he caught my attention through my intellect and proving the resurrection to me through history and confirmed by the Bible's account, and then through the actions of other believers who loved me enough to be patient with my arguments and disdain for Christian culture. But I exist to make known that Jesus is alive. That's why I believe I'm here on earth. I have responsibilities of helping lead this church and helping lead my family and loving my children and caring for my wife and doing all of these things. But my personal example of why I'm here is I exist. I have my being to make known that Jesus is alive. And that, I believe has always been the message of the apostles to preach the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the atonement and forgiveness of sins through the evidence of salvation being available through faith in that message. So verse 33 again, and then we'll jump to 34. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put them at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Needs were met by the church, by the ecclesia. The movement of the gathering was to make sure that everyone had their basic needs taken care of, not because the church was required to do this nor did it justify any person, but because Jesus rose from the dead and because they were witnesses of that fact that Jesus was the Messiah spoken of a long time ago. And if Jesus can rise from the dead, then eternity is real. Eternal life is accessible and offered through the grace of Jesus's finished work on the cross and the empty tomb. And what happens when you truly realize and understand that your sins that you have committed, are committing, and will commit are forgiven through the gift of another rather than you believing you achieve this yourself? I believe gratitude and exaltation of the one who gave you that gift is what happens. And when enough people who come together who have had their priorities shifted and changed start to look the way that the King James Bible puts it in First Peter, that they looked peculiar, different, weird. See, it's weird to care for others more than you care for yourself. It's weird and peculiar to use your hard-earned money to bless someone else who may have needs. It's weird to sell of your real estate and make sure that no one has a need that cannot be met. It's weird to open up your property to house people who you barely know so they can quarantine and have a place to rest and recoup from COVID. It's weird to see financial needs of other brothers and sisters in a community and write checks to pay off those debts. It's even weird to look for opportunities for others so they can be helped financially and you help financially but you do it anonymously it's weird to give towards the missionaries with the hope that the gospel will reach people in places like Cambodia it's weird to partner with other people to help them purchase a home it's weird to use your money for the kingdom of God but you know what all of what I just said I've seen happen in this community in the past two years you know why Because people believe in the living God, and we are the church of the living God. Now, did you catch it? The living God. Not a dead God, not a dead prophet, not a good teacher, not a really moral man, a living God with skin named Jesus. That is why Christians are so peculiar. That is why the church of the living God is so weird and cares for other people, even financially. Why? Because Jesus is alive. And this group of people, this early church who believed in the resurrected Jesus, did not consider what they had to be theirs because they believed that what they had was a gift. Why? Because they existed through the means of a gift. They understood that their salvation was a gift, that they had their jobs and their resources and their abilities all through the gift of God. See, I so appreciate the elders in this church. Here's why. They don't consider what they have as their own. And this is what the church in Acts 4 is applying in their own lives. Look at how Paul puts it in the letter to the church in Philippi. In Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 6, it says, In your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Now that's NIV. Let me show you ESV just so you hear this in a different way. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. See, Jesus did not pull rank. He didn't say, you know what, mankind doesn't deserve me, even though we totally don't. And yet he came and he took on the posture of a servant. And his equality with God was not something that he grasped onto. This is what the church in Acts 4 was experiencing. They did not grasp onto anything that they had as their own. They didn't treat what they had as earned. But they treated everything they had as gifted to them by God. And so they were there to steward the things that God gave them. Now, we might feel like we worked really hard for our promotion or to get our job or to get ahead or to buy the home that we did or whatever, but who do you think gave you the ability, let alone the breath in your lungs? So when I think of our elders and many people within this community, I think of people who don't grasp onto things like a baby and use and say the most well-known term, mine. But rather, they look at others and say, what do you need? How can I help? See, that's the church leadership I want to be led by. That's a community of believers I want to influence my family. Not because any of them think that by being that way that they get to another level of heaven or their own planet or some other heresy, but they do it because Jesus is alive. And what they have is theirs to steward, not to grasp onto. Now, I don't talk about giving very much, at least financially, and we're pretty far into the sermon, and so it would be easy for you to check out. But because when I teach, I want to teach what the text means, not what I want it to mean to justify my agenda. But here's my agenda this morning, like every morning. It's that you would realize you're a sinner. Would you look around real fast? Okay. Look at everybody, you know, smile with your eyes. Cool. Now let them know they're a sinner. You're a sinner. The reality is we're all sinners in need of grace. And grace is available in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But this passage is pointing to our worship of creation versus the Creator. Their priorities, this early church's priorities were changed. And because of that, their wealth and their material possessions were now no longer ultimate They were a tool for kingdom use. Why do we give at Church of the Valley? Why do we do an offering? We do it to worship. To put our life where our belief is. To not only make us more reliant, but to have an application of our reliance upon God. See, giving is hard. Especially when the month outlasts the paycheck. You know what I'm saying? But I'll tell you what. Being generous with our finances brings joy. Being generous with our finances brings joy. And I, not in that kind of temporal feeling we get when we order something on Amazon and then it comes, but, but a joy of proving even to ourselves that our relationship with God isn't just for show, but it's really for an audience of one who we don't need to prove anything to. He knows our heart, but if our finances become our main priority... So we can save for a rainy day over caring for the needs of others or our financial portfolio becomes more important to us than the word of God, then maybe we need to ask ourselves who we really worship, who we really depend on, who we really think is worthy of our devotion. Now listen, you cannot outgive God. That's been said so many times. But how can you give nothing if you do understand all that God has given you? And once again, our actions don't justify us. All they do is illustrate what we really believe. Okay, I talked about money. And I haven't done that in quite a while. So let's keep going. Hopefully people are still in the room. Are you? Hello? Anyone? Amen? Amen? Okay. <laughs> you talked back to a video. Fun. All right, last two verses. Verse 46 and, or 36 and 37. Joseph a Levite from Cyprus whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Luke points out a real world and real name of an individual who had his priorities shook. Joseph, a Levite known as Barnabas. We will hear much more about Barnabas in the upcoming chapters. And this is the first place that he shows up. Barnabas goes on to be known as a bridge builder and a great encourager, hence the name. And he sells this property. Now, there are a few different scenarios to why this Levite had property to be sold. But I'm going to skip all the possibilities and go with the one that I think is the safest. He was a businessman who had purchased and now was using his investment not for himself, but for the community in which he found himself in barnabas a son of encouragement he does not he does he does amazing things later on in scripture in the book of acts he encourages john mark after the writer of the gospel known as mark has a falling out with the apostle paul before that barnabas cares for paul when paul was uh, after meeting the resurrected jesus is pretty scary to all the other apostles and believers because of Paul's track record in persecuting and killing Christians. But Barnabas builds bridges that are so important for the gospel continuing throughout all of Asia Minor and beyond, even to us. Barnabas was generous, not because he had a lot of wealth, which maybe he did. He was generous because Jesus was alive and the Spirit of God resides with and in him. So may I remind you, Brothers and sisters, as we're going to conclude, as I've gone longer than I wanted to on a video, let me remind you that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, fills you, dominates you, and brings to remembrance his word and his truth and his actions and his will. And all we have to do, (laughs) all we have to do, led by the spirit, is labor prompted by love, Work produced by faith and endure out of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So, I don't know about you, but this passage and its meaning and its implications convicted me this week. It convicted me harshly in some ways. And I tell you that to communicate that I plan to share my convictions probably with an elder or pastor in this community. And I hope that because I've shared it out loud, that I will be reminded and held accountable and actually put something into practice rather than feeling a moment of conviction and walk away forgetting what I look like and having my heart hardened even more to God's goodness, grace, and sanctifying power. I'm going to conclude with this because I feel like I should, even though it's not my final conclusion. Thursday I was talking with some co-laborers and some of the frustrations of this week and this month and maybe the last two years came out a little bit. I said some things in frustration that I shouldn't have. I was on a run right after and the sinking conviction wouldn't let go of me as I attempted to justify myself in prayer. So I sent an email and I told all those that were on the call that I was sorry for what I said. Now, I'm not any more saved than any of you who have trusted Jesus Christ and believe he's alive. The only thing I can say is that 20 years ago, five years ago, maybe even a year ago, I wouldn't have said that. I wouldn't have apologized. I wouldn't have publicly acknowledged my mistake because I was too prideful to do so, and admitting guilt is not something we like to do. Jesus was without guilt, and yet he sacrificed his life for ours, and I want to be like Jesus. I want to do what Jesus says and what Jesus did say to do at the beginning of his ministry in Mark chapter 1 verses 14 through 15 was this. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. I believe the good news, church. I believe that Jesus lived, died, and rose again for me. I believe he is alive. And you know how you know that I believe that? Because I'm in process of becoming less of me. And I hope one day all about him. Perfectly? No way. Do I take some detours? All the time. But God is gracious to forgive and merciful to give me the ability to repent and change direction. And I hope you also can do so. Forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven you. Why? Because Jesus is alive. He is risen. Let's pray. Father, I had too many words, especially for a screen. But I just thank you for your word. And I thank you that you are doing a work. I thank you that you are moving amongst our people. Would you be glorified? Would you be pleased? Would we worship you honestly and faithfully? Convict us, Lord. May we not do better (laughs) in that sense. May we repent of our sin and turn to you, and may the Spirit of God rule in us. We love you, Lord. Amen.